So Lord, we pray that you direct our steps this evening and bless our conversation in Christ's name. Amen. So we are on the top of page 14, right here on the overhead notes forthcoming, perhaps. Well, I don't know, who, who needs them? If you, didn't, if you don't have them, put your hand up. Don't be bashful. Raise it high so Jeff can see. Cool. So what we're doing is we're moving into this, this new section about what is the biblical explanation for the chaos, the contradictions, and false narratives of the world's zeitgeist. So we spent all of last time exploring what this means. We, we asked the question, in the absence of people looking to the Bible for their understanding of what it means to be human and more, why do we see all these different isms, postmodernism, secularism, neo-Marxism, and more? We looked at all these different things that we see in the world that people will appeal to for authority, and now we want to turn to the Bible because God actually tells us in his word why we see what we're seeing with all the isms and more. And those isms, you can, you'll be able to see in your notes once you get them if you don't have them. So we, we ended here last time. I want to begin here by looking at Romans 1. I'm going to go ahead and read this and begin to work through the notes. This is God's explanation through the Apostle Paul of when people live in sin and don't believe the gospel, this is what happens to the human heart. So Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling bodies, birds, beasts, and bugs. Right? Mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up, in the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, lesbianism. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men 
and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. These words by the Apostle Paul are some of the darkest, or another way to say it, the bad news, which makes the good news of the gospel the good news, right? Jesus Christ is the rescuer. And what we've seen last semester and this semester is that when God made Adam and Eve and made the Garden of Eden, he made the world perfect, and we were in paradise, and people lived in harmony with him, perfectly obeying his word. But when Adam and Eve sinned, this is what sin did to every single human heart. And so last week when we talked about neo-Marxism and secularism and people appealing to individualism and subjectivism and materialism and all the isms, the reason the world believes the way it does, the reason that you can scroll through TikTok and more and all the things that you see, all the ideologies that you see on Fox News or CNN or any of the news, all those different things, when God is not being worshipped and his word is not being revered, this is what we all do. So before any of us were saved, Romans 1 characterized us. And for a world outside these walls, this is what characterizes the world. This explains why we see all the chaos in the world, right? The purpose of this class is to explore biblical anthropology. What does the Bible say about uh, personhood, man and woman? What does the Bible say about sexuality and gender and marriage and households? What does the Bible say about ethnicity and more? The world gives alternative definitions, and this is why. So what we see is that there's a reason, there are, rather there is, for every person, the Bible says, there's an undeniable creational and conscience witness to the existence and attributes of God. His moral nature, our accountability to him, and what people do is people reject what's called general revelation. We can call it the, the book of creation. And in it, Paul told us that you can see God's divine nature, his attributes, his moral nature. So it's God's immediate and active wrath is placed upon people when we see him giving up, giving up, giving up. Creation and conscience are insufficient to save, but sufficient to condemn in that God is known, but the gospel is not. But what do people do with what creation teaches? 
we were told they suppress it. So before Jesus saved me, at 21, through high school, college, my whole life, even though I knew that there was a God from my youngest age, I always knew God existed. I had some spiritual pursuits, dabbling in different religions, but I suppressed what could be known about him and basically invented a God or gods in my own image, my own likeness, and my own thinking. I was a truth suppressor, and so were you, and so are all people apart from biblical revelation. We saw in these verses that apart from faith in the gospel, all people suppress the truth of God, and they become what the Bible calls fools. Not because of it's a matter of unintelligence, but Proverbs tells us the fool says in his heart, or actually it's in Psalms, the fool says in his heart there is no God. And what people do is they exchange the glory of God for idols. They worship and serve creatures rather than the creator. So the root sin is false worship, what the Bible calls idolatry. Biblically, there's no such thing as a true atheist. And foolishness begins with the mind, does not begin with the mind, but with the heart. Brilliant people can be fools in that their fundamental posture and explanation of the world rejects God. Because of this hard-hearted and willful, foolish rebellion, towards the bottom of page 15, God gives people over to their sins. Paul gives them up or rather, God gives them up to what they want. And notice what Paul lists. Paul says that when people refuse God and they want to worship creation rather than the creator, there's a judgment built into it where God uh, loosens the leash. He gives them up. He gives them over to more and more sin. And Paul begins by naming sexual sins. He names lesbianism in verse 26 male homosexuality in any form in verse 27. Then he goes through a junk drawer of all manner of sins in verses 28 to 31. So by way of summary, God giving people over to their sin is a demonstration of his wrath in real time. Not just end times eternal wrath in hell, but real time is he removes any restraint from their desires to sin and opens them to embrace the sins that they want to sin. And what I want you to see is that all, in the context of Romans 1, all these sins flow from and are acts of worship, right? Exchanging the truth of God for a lie, worshiping and serving creation rather than the creator. So last time, when we talked about neo-Marxism, individualism, postmodernism, and all the isms, all these different beliefs that are just in our world, baked into being raised in this culture, is the world attempting to explain and live in the world apart from God. And so all of these ideologies come up, and what they ultimately are is they're ultimately acts of worship. In some way or some fashion... The belief systems are people worshiping something or someone other than God because they're exchanging the truth for a lie. And in the context of Romans 1, all these sins 
are acts of exchanging the truth of truth for a lie. They're contrary to God's creational order. They're a subversion, an undermining, an inversion of God's creational order. So the sins that are listed are really the antithesis of what we see in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, and in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And lastly, verse 32 revealed to us that despite truth suppression, deep down all people know they have a sense of God's disapproval of these sins. It's a end. They give approval. So if you, if you go back, there's a group think here in, in verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree, so every single human, even if a person says, I'm an atheist, Sam Harris, uh, uh, what's the other guy's name? Hitchens. All the famous new atheists. The Bible says, no matter how red in the face they get denying it, the Bible says that every single person knows God's righteous decree deep down and that those who practice any types of the sins listed deserve to die, but they not only do them, they give approval to those who practice them. So one of the things that we spent time last week, and I'll take questions in a moment, one of the things that we noticed last week was the rise of uh, what I'll call the cult of activism, of being an activist. So what we learned last time about the rise of this multi-headed beast of neo-Marxism and critical theory and all different species and diversity, equity, and inclusion is all now kind of jumbled together into this um, ideology that is activist in nature, meaning it's not just enough to say that you are for it. If you're not actually in the march, in the protest, being an activist in some capacity, defending the ideologies of LGBTQ+, uh, pro-abortion, um, systemic racism, and more, if you're not actively working against it, you are that. You are a racist, you are a homophobe, a transphobe, and more. So there's a coercion in it, and here's where you see why. Baked in, in verse 32, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So there is within sin this insanity that if you can get other people to agree and go along and approve their sins, it creates this perspective, and we'll come back to this in a little bit, that, well, if we're all doing it, it's got to be okay. It's a form of self-delusion and more. So this is a very bold, very dark, bad news statement that makes the good news of Jesus so good because we're going to see that he... Jesus died on the cross for these very sins that we commit, and Jesus rescues us from these very sins and makes us a new humanity in him. So before we go on, just any questions, because this is a huge text, lots of stuff, I blew through it, any questions regarding this Romans 1 perspective of God's explanation of why we see the world the way it is? All right, so here's additional explanations. Romans 2, 
for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Referring to the law of Moses. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. And here's what I want us to see. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What's going on here? The focus in Romans 1 was the witness of creation, looking at the complexity of humanity, just the fact that we exist, or an animal, or weather patterns, just... It's Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. Now, in fast forward to Romans 2, Paul is now shifting to what every human being is born with, and that is the conscience. So the key to notice here, for our purposes, about why do we see these different ideologies exist, is that we are told every person has a conscience. That's your inner lawyer. It's the, uh, in the cartoon, the good angel and bad angel on your shoulder. That every person has a sense of right and wrong, regardless of where you are and when you are. There's a good angel and bad angel, and that we can do things and then feel guilty or shame because of those things without anyone even saying something to us. That's the conscience. And the Bible tells us that the conscience, it can be seared, It can cause uh, pangs, pain. It can be clear or conflicting. It can be weak. It can view things as sin, which in God's eyes are not sin. If weak conscience, it can also be wounded. One conscience, one's conscience on a debatable manner cannot determine the conscience of another person. A conscience can be evil and a conscience can be purified. Okay, so what's the point? He says in verse 15, they show the work of the law is written on their hearts. What does that mean? What it doesn't mean is that they can stand up and suddenly start quoting Exodus 20 to you, chapter and verse, to give you the Ten Commandments. And it doesn't mean that they can open up that Matthew 5 through 7 is on their heart and they can just start quoting Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. But what it does mean is that the moral ethic that God had, which has, which is in the Ten Commandments and in the Sermon on the Mount, was the law or the rule that was in Adam and Eve's hearts and every human heart. So every human heart has, in a sense, that in some way or fashion, theft is wrong, murder is wrong, Lying is wrong. Coveting is wrong. Having idols is wrong. Just thinking through the Ten Commandments and more. The 
the work of the law written on their hearts, the law is most likely the instinctual sense of right and wrong exemplified in the ethics of, of what I just mentioned. These ethics don't have chapter and verse in the pagan heart, nonetheless revealed that there's a residual imago dei in each person. So we're asking this big question, why in the world do we see the world going the way that it is? Romans 1 told us it's a worship issue, suppressing the truth of God and inventing false gods. Now we're seeing in Romans 2 that everybody knows who marches down the street or the people who spoke on the microphone at city council for their pro-abortion agenda or all of those things know deep down that it's morally reprehensible to God, but their conscience can be seared we learned it can be evil so that they do, that there's, a, there's almost a um, schizophrenic way of not realizing it, but then in their heart of hearts, they know it's true. That's what the Bible says. So it's why when I was an unbeliever, I had a deep sense of right and wrong, not just because my parents cultivated it in me, even though they weren't believers, but there was a sense where things I would say, things I would do, ways I would act, and more I knew just deep down were wrong, but I couldn't tell you that it was God, but now the Bible tells me that's actually because God wrote his moral law on my heart. So what we see then is if you're to engage with a person, to ask them if they embrace the different ideologies that we see, if they have a different understanding that, well, there's no such thing as gender, it's fluid, that your biology doesn't matter, but you can be what you want on any given day, not just gender-wise, but you could be with any, what you want age-wise, except for ethnicity. You can't change your ethnicity because that's cultural appropriation. But you can change everything else. But deep down talking to somebody about those things, when you begin to ask why, 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 you're going to see that you're going to encounter a conscience that's seared or hard, that's uh, been hardened by the sin. Even so, what this means is that the wisdom and brilliance of the forgiveness of Jesus, Jesus living in our place, dying for our sins, Jesus rising from the grave and conquering death and more, and then the Bible's teaching on gender and sexuality, marriage in the house, and on down you go, the reconciliation that Jesus can give between warring ethnicities and Jesus alone to create one new man, deep down, that's because that's the truth, whether or not they receive it, there's going to be an element where they won't be able to argue against it because it's the truth. They may not believe it. You might get hit in the face, spit in the face, or just mocked, but it's still true. So that's creation and conscience. Any, any questions on Romans 1 or Romans 2 as we move forward? I know it's a lot, I know it's fast. Diane and then Ron. Just a question about, is this predominantly an, an issue in the United States or worldwide with this whole mix up of gender and sexuality and all of that? In the, in the Western world, in the industrialized Western world, it is. Uh, not so much in honor shame cultures, East Asian cultures, things along those lines, though the sins listed in Romans 1 are going to be present there. And 
just for example, when uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned, you could see that there was demonstrations in Israel and France and just Western Europe and, um, and other Western cultures protesting it. So what happens here is exported everywhere else, um, and especially with Disney. Ron. Oh, perfect. Thanks, guys, for sitting right by each other. <laughs> Who needs page 14 and on? Raise your hand. Thanks. Keep them up. So we're created with a conscience. A baby is born with a conscience. Yes. What is the mechanism of searing the conscience? That's a great question. What's the mechanism of searing of the conscience? I think the best way to summarize what scripture teaches is an ongoing willful rejection of what can be known of God. So if you know God's word and you reject it, you're searing your conscience. And if you don't know who God is, but you see him in creation, quote unquote, see him in creation. Careful how I say that. Um, you deny Psalm 19.1, your, your heart can be hardened further. Really good question. There's a, if you go on our, the church website, I did a three-part series on the conscience that spends about three hours on this topic. I, it's good to listen to if, if you're interested. Scott, you got something? Yeah, I got a question. So, so you're in a conversation with uh, someone who is trying to poke holes in the Bible, let's say. So let's say I'm that person. And according to what you just said from Romans 2, how does that square with John 16? Dave, um, so John 16, let's say 7, says, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I don't go away, the Helper, meaning the Holy Spirit, will not come to you, but if I go, I'll send him to you. And then verse 8 says, When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. So I guess the question would be, if you're saying that their conscience convicts of sin, but Jesus says the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, and those who aren't professing believers aren't vessels of the Holy Spirit, how would you respond to that? Great question, Scott. The conscience is the keyboard for the Holy Spirit. So one of the ways that he acts upon us to draw us to Christ is... Um, the spirit is always active, and so in, in that regard, so we all were in Romans 1, and if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit, with working with the gospel, gave us new hearts, saved us, put us in our right minds. That's where he convicted us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. For someone who is not being saved, that conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment is like a miniature version of Romans 1 where they suppress the truth, know they deserve to die, but then they suppress it. So the Holy Spirit is, he's always active. He, the third member of the Trinity is always active in everything. Assume the Spirit always works with the word of God. So when Isaiah says, my word goes, Isaiah 55, my word will go forth to accomplish all that it purposes and won't return void. 
God's word never operates apart from the spirit. The spirit never operates apart from the word. It's a really good question. Anything else about Romans 1 and 2, creation and conscience? As we're continuing to explore why in the world do we see all the chaos that we're seeing in the world today? All right, Romans 3. What then, are we Jews any better off? Paul says to his countrymen. No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of, of snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and the paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The reason I put this in here is to explain that one, there's no self-righteousness that we can have ever as a Christian. And there's no um, self-righteousness that we can think that we were somehow more savable or more worthy or better than any other person because God set his love on us and saved us. Um, we, each of us, are the chief of sinners. And Romans 3 reminds us of that. And these verses simply sum up the plight of every human being and each of our need for the gospel, which itself is the power of God for salvation. Paul gives the worst news in all the world across Romans 1, 2, and 3, so that he can give the best news in the world, which is that Jesus saves people just like me and you. And everything that the world is clamoring for out these doors is what Jesus is willing to give if they repent and believe. And so what that means then is... This should cultivate a humility in us that when we go and we're talking with someone, I, 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 was, I will confess that I was, I was really angry. I was really upset after the city council meeting. And I told you guys the other week that I, I woke up at 3 a.m. and couldn't go back to sleep. And part of it was, there was many reasons, but as people were getting up to give their defense and reason to be pro-abortion and the way the city council just applauded it, especially the three NAU professors who got up and the religious professor, well, I did not meet their blindness with grace. I, 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 my heart was uncharitable toward the, towards them. Now, they are promoting a wickedness, and I told them that they'll be judged for that wickedness by God, and it's not a light matter, and we and need to defend the unborn over their foolishness, 
But what these verses show is that there's a blindness that's inexcusable and God will judge it and is judging it by leaving them in that blindness. But we as Christians are supposed to be armed with the gospel and armed with forgiveness and grace when we talk to people. Um, and so that's, that's why I have that in there, which leads to the next point. Let's get some good news. 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, so sexually immoral is a junk drawer term for any sexual expression outside of heterosexual, one man, woman, corresponding to your biology marriage. That's what sexual morality is. Don't be deceived. Sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Two words in the Greek here for both the um, active and receiving aspects of that. Two different words. Nor thieves, nor greedy people, nor drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So you hear that and you go, yeah, that's, that's right. We shouldn't be deceived. We, we can't call these sins, which the world wants to call beautiful and not sinful, we can't call them beautiful, but here's where Paul steps in. Here's where the humility comes in. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Paul writes to the church at Corinth with all their sins and failures and problems, and he reminds them, yeah, the sinners aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. And all this sin list, he assumes with great confidence that every one of the species of sin named there and all the other species of sin is his audience. And so what this means is that the redeeming blood of Jesus rescues from all sexual sins, covetousness, greed, drunk, all the list. None of the sins listed here are the unpardonable sin. The only unforgivable sin is refusing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only unforgivable sin. Note how these sins are nearly identical to the Romans 1 sins. So the danger is to read Romans 1 and think, yeah, look at those bad guys. But now Paul's talking about the same groups and types of sins, just shorter version, cliff notes, in 1 Corinthians 6. And he says, yeah, all of you, church, you all do your different ways, had your own species of unique sins that you wrestled with, and Jesus washed you. You're not guilty anymore. There's no more shame anymore. The blood of Christ has washed you away. So in a sense, this passage is the reversal of Romans 1. In other words, this is what happens to a person who's trapped in sin, Romans 1. But then when they believe the gospel, also Romans 1, they get washed by the blood of Christ. So summary. We're asking that big question. Why is the world the way it is? What do we see with all of these politics and philosophies and ideologies combined? These verses explain the what and why 
of the present state of the world and the cultural spirit of the age, the zeitgeist explored above. Colt, what does zeitgeist mean? Time ghost. So cool. If people are going to suppress and reject the true biblical worldview, then they must replace it with something else to make sense of and justify all of life. I said that fast. I'm going to say that again because you can't miss it. People are meaning makers. We, we need to make sense of things. So once again, if people are going to suppress and reject the true biblical worldview, then they have to replace it with something else to make sense of and justify the lies that they walk in, which they don't think are lies. So kind of going back to the question about how every human heart has that conscience and the law written on their heart, that means that if you're engaging with a family member, a coworker, a friend, a classmate, whatever, that if you just simply ask the questions, what, what do you mean by that? And how do you know that's true? If you just keep asking questions, well, how, well, how do you know that's true? Love is love. Well, how do you know that? What do you mean by that? And how do, how do you know that's true? And then how do you know that's true? And if you keep asking how do you know that's true questions, you get down to the bedrock where someone has to make an appeal to authority. Right? We all make appeals to authority. For the Christian, it's easy. Thus says the Lord. Right? It's written. Here's God's word. We appeal to his authority in his word. However, for someone else, they're going to appeal to either their religious tradition, their upbringing, the professor in class, a book they read, uh, what Joe Rogan said, or whatever. They're going to appeal to somebody, and then they're going to say, that's my authority. And that's where you can help someone expose, then, contradictions they believe, because at, at root, only the Bible is non-contradictory and coherent rather than incoherent. A couple more, I'll take some questions. In the absence of biblical truth, people don't create new truth. Instead, they subvert and invert God's creational and moral order. So personhood, gender, ethnicity, marriage, sexuality, home and family, worship, more. Right? So if you believe in ev evolution, then you believe that there's different races. And because there's different races and different... Uh, evolutionary trees, then you're going to say one race is superior to another. That's satanic. Or you're going to think that because of someone's uh, pigment of their skin, uh, curliness of their hair, or straightness of their hair, or anything, is somehow makes them superior, or smarter, inferior, any of those things, that's, that's from the pit of hell. But when you go to the Bible, you see that, the, oh, there's only one race, the human race, and the diversity that we express is a blessing and gift from the Lord because it glorifies him that we are different. And then in Christ, all the human walls that we erect against each other, Jesus tears down and makes us one new person and more. Again, only rejecting the gospel is irredeemable. All other sins can and will be covered by the blood of Christ for those who repent and embrace the gospel truth. We all were saved out of all manner of these sins, and therefore, so can those currently in those sins, even our enemies. What we're seeing today, based on the verses explored above, is a combined push of various political, you know, Marxism, social, LGBTQ+, movements to look to the government 
to legalize and legislate their desires and ideals. For them, the government is their God. If any of the sins previously explored can be legalized and celebrated, then in their eyes, recognized or not, their sin is no longer sin. And the Christian cultural hegemony is overthrown piece by piece. So when the Supreme Court uh, voted in favor for Obergefell in 2014-2015, legalizing same-sex marriage at the federal level, that then legitimized what was stigmatized by culture as, as bad. But once the Supreme Court said, no, it's illegal for you to prevent same-sex couples from marrying, it became legitimate. So that's where part of the activism that we see is also political activism. Because if the government, if, we can pa if, if they can pass laws that make legal their sins, then it becomes okay. And that's part of the seared conscience for the pro-abortion death cult. Is that if it's going to be, if, if Flagstaff is going to, our city council is going to make a proclamation on our behalf that we reject both Arizona and the, both Supreme Courts and federal, then there's a sense of legitimization. And, and so that's, that's an explanation of when you look then at politics these days, is it's a battle of gods. And it's a battle of worship. And it's a battle of legitimacy. Very important to understand that at heart of what we see taking place. So again, just by way of reminder, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's get that law passed. Do you, not, or do you presume on the richness, riches and the kindness, excuse me, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath. The word there is treasure. You're treasuring up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Paul is appealing to people to repent just because that God has not come back yet, it's his kindness that's meant to lead you to repentance and more. So this, this you guys, is a, a very fast, high-flying survey of a biblical explanation of why we see the world the way it is. Any questions? Anything that you got? Yeah, Alexis. So I feel like it's not totally surprising that the world is turning this way. I feel like where I get confused is when churches semi-turn that direction. So for example, um, a coworker of mine I used to work with a long time ago, I thought he was a Christian because he was talking about church and Jesus and Jesus' forgiveness and all these things. But then I found out he was married to the front desk guy and that their church supports LGBTQ relationships and marriage, but are teaching Jesus Christ forgiveness and everything at the same time so I get confused like if someone who's a part of a body of a church like that is believing this but still refusing to walk away from that sin what camp are they in like 
saved, not saved, just believing false theology? Like, what do you do when it's a church that's promoting those things and their people in their congregation are doing those things and they're not steering them in that direction of what scripture is saying? Excellent question. So we know that the New Testament teaches, we can summarize it, there's such things as false apostles, false prophets, false teachers, false brothers, wolves. I think that's the five. And then in Acts 20, it talks about how uh, false teachers and wolves will arrive in the midst of the own church, even among the elders. Wolves will rise up to draw disciples after them. So what we don't know is, on the one hand, uh, so I'm, I'm starting broad, and then I'll narrow down to what your coworker is talking about. Because what we don't know is, is this person um, undiscipled, and they're being lied to by false teachers who are keeping them trapped in their sin, but they want out? Or is this person, oh, and false converts, number six. So, or you have, is this person a false convert? where they uh, think they're saved, but they're not, because we just saw Corinthians, you, you cannot um, willfully live an unrepentant homosexual lifestyle and say that you're a believer. S someone, who, someone whose unique sin, their unique lust is same-sex attraction, they can fall, in, fall into that sin in the way that someone else can fall into their species of lust or their species of lying, anger, stealing, covetousness, and theft. But if they're repented of it and they know that that's, that's not who I am in Christ anymore and I've just succumbed to my sins, that's one thing. But if someone says, no, uh, the, home, the LGBTQ plus lifestyle is, is true, right, and beautiful and God accepts it. We just read that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the church that if so if he's going to a church, the church is lying to them, or the church is being faithless by not disciplining them, which is what the church is supposed to do, presuming it's a gospel church. But if it's not a gospel church, then it's a false church, and that's where Romans two and three comes in, when Jesus calls churches to repent, and if they don't, he removes their lampstand. So there's a whole bunch of triangulation going on about something along those lines, and. Uh, there's, there's a church in town, the commons. That's a false church. And the reason they're a false church is because uh, their pastor came out 2020 or so um, by saying, in essence, my summary, not his words, is that homosexuality, LGBTQ plus is welcome here, true, right, and beautiful. And it's not a sin to be repented of. And then there's all these gymnastics foisted on the text of scripture to say well all the sins whenever paul talks about the or any sexual morality it's just talking about non-monogamous sexual immorality so as long as you're in a monogamous same-sex relationship they would say it's okay and that's false that's absolutely not what the bible teaches and when i heard him say those things i listened to his message um genuinely to, to, be, to be fair, is he was in tears. He was so sad about the suicide rates of those who struggle with transgenderism and more. Uh, 
but his solution was not to give them the gospel, but to take the gospel away from them. And he's, he is liable for that. And he's going to be judged for that unless he repents. Any other questions or comments on this pretty heavy explanation of why things are the way that they are? Yeah. What, what's your name? Jacob. Jacob. Um, I was going to say, knowing a lot, or like I, I used to know a lot of people in that type of group of the false uh, Christians and stuff. Um, one of the things that I was looking at Romans 2, 4 through 5, I think speaks to on that is that they often presume on the idea of like just an aspect of God's love, like something like just kindness. Um, and they're like, oh, well, it's kind to be accepting. And then they make that their God rather than God. And they bring and they they exalt that one aspect above God himself. And so that's just something I've noticed is that often they'll distort things. They'll take what they like, make that the focus, and ignore everything else. And that's often how these churches are led astray. I also had another question that's not, I guess, extremely related to what you said, but it was one of the passages that you had brought up in Romans 2, 12 through 16. Um, I was wondering, I've heard people make arguments before, and this one, this is one of these ones that I'm very, I just haven't done a lot of research into myself. I'm interested to hear what your th thoughts are on it, of uh, people who make the argument that verses like this could uh, potentially say that uh, someone has the possibility of being saved apart from hearing the gospel in that like because uh, they act uh, like it talks about the um, for when Gentiles who do not have the law but, but by nature do what the law requires they are a law to themselves and people say like is there a possibility that these people like I've, I've heard people say like oh if they were to go to heaven like if they were to have heard the gospel they would have accepted it right there but because they never even heard it they never had that opportunity, but it was basically in their hearts. I was just interested on what your thoughts on were there. Good question. Excellent question. Paul answers that in Romans 10, beginning in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they've never believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. Not through a tree, rock, or rainbow, or the sun. It has to come through the gospel. So, uh, that's, so Paul answers and anticipates that very question. So how does this work by the doctrine of election? If there's someone, if there is a Swahili tribeswoman, then God is going to send a missionary to preach the gospel so that that tribeswoman is saved. Yeah, good question. And then back to your comment about love. The other thing about love is love is redefined, right? Love is love. Well, what is love? Love is you letting me do whatever I want, not judging me for it. Biblical love is I'm going to die so that you have life. And part of that is me telling you the truth no matter how you respond to me. And the truth is that 
that's not love. It's actually hatred. That's the, that's the sinister brilliance of calling everybody a phobe, transphobe, homophobe, all those things. You're not afraid and you're not a hater. We actually are the ones who love people by telling them the truth and we're called hateful bigots for that. Let's, let's move forward. What is marriage? What is it for? What are the effects of sin and the gospel on marriage? Okay, so this is not a marriage retreat. So I'm not going to say all there is about marriage, but I, I do think there's some really, there's quite a bit of, few, there are quite a few treasures that we're going to see regarding marriage. Those of you, um, if you know somebody who's married, please raise your hand. Then this is for you. Singles, this is premarital class. And maybe you'll meet someone to marry in this room. Okay, Genesis chapter 1. Let's get to some good, happy stuff. So we've, we've dealt with uh, gender and personhood last semester. Now we're going to get into marriage. Why marriage? What is it? All right, here we go. Genesis chapter 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth, every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw that it was, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So by way of reminder, summing this up, and we spent a lot of time on this last semester, God's create, God created Adam and Eve, man and woman, to be his image bearers, both in character and relationship. They were vice regents, under king, under queens. God is the king. Man and woman are to continue God's creative act in creation by carrying out his creation commission. And the creation commission is be fruitful, multiply, fill and subdue the earth, exercise dominion. That's what man and woman are to do. They both share the creation commission. Okay? The question is, how is that going to happen? That's Genesis 2. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. Notice the irony. The fall hasn't happened yet. Only Adam exists. And this is the only thing that is not good. Adam's alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that's, that's what its name was. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him, corresponding to him. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish, woman and man. Therefore, and now Moses gives commentary, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. No other creature could be man's counterpart other than a woman. The only thing not good is in God's very good unfallen creation was man without woman. Why? Because, Genesis 2, God designed marriage to be the context and engine to obey and drive the creation commission. Be fruitful, multiply, fill and subdue the earth, exercise dominion. Marriage is going to be the fertile soil for the fruitfulness and faithfulness for expanding the Garden of Eden. Right? Pre-fall, the creation commission, expand the Garden of Eden until it covers the whole earth. While the overwhelming majority of people will eventually marry, it bears repeating that singleness is a gift and special calling from the Lord for some. For some, you will marry, but not for a long time. For some, you will never marry, and that's a gift of the Lord. And for some, you are single because, the, because you're widowed or a widow, and that also is a difficult gift and special calling from the Lord. And 1 Corinthians 7 speaks of that when we are single, we're able to serve the Lord and his church and his kingdom in unique ways that married people cannot. I just want to, we're going to be talking about marriage so much, I need to put that in front of us, is that singleness is not a second class Christian citizen or any, by any means. Just because one does not marry or is able to have children does not in any way mean that they're less the image of God or unfaithful to his creation commission. Quite the contrary. Life in the local family of the church is an excellent means to walk with others in Jesus' gospel purposes for the world. Right? So we know it's the Lord who opens and closes the womb. We know that it's the Lord. Uh, he who finds a wife finds a good thing as a gift from the Lord and more. So um, some of you might wrestle with the sense of Am I being disobedient because I don't have a kid or I'm not married? And the answer is no. That's from the Lord. It's the motivation of our heart and what our hearts want. And our hearts should want to want what God wants for us. And then he'll give it to us in his time. More on this in a minute. Marriage is a covenant union because where two become one flesh in every respect, relationally, sexually. And this requires, we read, a man and a woman to leave their respective families and cleave to one another as their most intimate, highest priority, exclusive, loving relationship. These are the details we're beginning to see from Genesis 2. A man and a woman. Hypothetically, God could have chosen not to invent the institution of marriage. Hypothetically speaking, 
God is the all-wise being. He's, he's planned all things. So hypothetically speaking, he could have chosen not to invent the institution of marriage. And he could have allowed humanity to be promiscuous. Just one giant group marriage. He, he could have done that, hypothetically speaking. I'm going to argue that he could not hypothetically do that. But I just want you to see that if we explore all possible worlds, I'm using this to build a case as a foil against the rise of the LGBTQ+, polyamory, and more movements that we're seeing. God, uh, he, he could have chosen to not require marriage to be between one man and woman, but in plural form, polyamory, group marriage, but he did not. Uh, theologically speaking, it is inconceivable that God could have made any other plan than the one that's already in place given in Scripture because Scripture is God's, or God's plan. This is his wisest, most moral, best plan, which most reflects his glory, grace, gospel, character, and triune nature. So we could go down all the hypothetical rabbit trails, but it's kind of a fool's errand because what is, what is written, is what it is. This is the best, there is no other. This is his gospel plan. But what I'll point out, though, is that this is the way he made things. So why marriage then? Just by way of summary. Why marriage? In a distant way, and we're going to revisit some of these. In a distant way, marriage reflects and mirrors the relational, creational, community life of our three-in-one God, the Trinity. In marriage, we read in Genesis 2, two become one and a third is created through childbearing. Procreation. The relational oneness of the Trinity informs the oneness of marriage. This is not an analogy that you can press too hard without getting into a bunch of heresies. But the idea here is that of all the worlds God could have made, he made male and female. And then it takes male and female together to fulfill the creation commission, which depends upon procreation. And, and reproduction. So why marriage? Marriage also provides the context and the means to obey the creation commission. And this reality is hardwired into our very anatomy and physiology, you could say psychology as well, when it comes to conceiving children and the ability to carry out manual labor and more. We looked at this at personhood, but the, the morphology of a man and a woman, the 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 muscular distribution, the fat distribution, the biology, our organs, and more are inescapably and undeniably hardwired for procreation and marriage, different yet similar. Why marriage? Marriage is a tutor for the gospel, where the role of the husband images Christ and the role of the wife images the church. We'll explore that more. So, so-called homosexual marriage cannot accomplish any of God's designs for marriage. When you read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and all these details that we're bringing to the surface of, okay, what, what's God up to in marriage? Why did he invent it? Same-sex marriage cannot procreate. Same-sex marriage cannot image the gospel with the husband in a Christ-like role, living and dying for his bride, 
and the wife in a church-like role submitting and respecting to her husband. Homosexual marriage is the inversion and subversion of God's design in Genesis 1, 2, 1 and 2. God does not authorize any person, people, or government to redefine and repurpose biblical marriage. Think Romans 1 discussed above. The whole world could agree and still be wrong. It's a very important point. Romans 3, 4 says, let God be true and every man a liar. Therefore, any so-called marriage that is not between one heterosexual biological men, man and one heterosexual biological woman is not and cannot be marriage. It can't be called that. Because this word marriage and what we see patterned in the Bible is it's, it's God's invention. And we're going we're gonna to circle back on almost all these points a little bit later, next time. But it cannot be marriage for those reasons. To be a marriage means that it somehow reflects the gospel, somehow is going to reflect the Trinity, somehow is going to be able to procreate, presuming God opens and closes the womb. Love is love. Biblical love never endorses, celebrates, or legislates sin. It never acts contrary to God's word or encourages others to do the same regardless if they're a believer or not since. That's a really complex sentence I wrote. I don't even know what I wrote. I need to get better at editing. So biblical love never acts contrary to God's word. It never encourages others to do the same regardless if they're a believer or not since the world only works best in every area when people walk according to the word, believer or not. <laughs> Sorry for the complexity on that one. I need Andy to edit that. I'm going to go circle back and explain that, but marriage is a creational ordinance. You don't need to be a believer to get married. God intends all human beings to get married. It's a creational ordinance. And therefore, because it's a creational ordinance, he intends all people everywhere to marry, all things being equal. And so my argument here is that God has designed life to work in a certain way. And even when an unbeliever unintentionally obeys God's word by marrying a heterosexual spouse and unintentionally walks remotely in roles in marriage, they are getting common grace benefits that God has built into to creation by virtue of walking according to his way, his ways, even though they're still not saved or anything along those lines. Uh, with two minutes left, I'm going to stop right there and take any questions, and we'll pick up where we left off next time. Any questions? So we've, we've moved quickly through marriage. We looked at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and are deriving this idea of marriage and quickly put up some quick thoughts and put that in contrast to the world's understanding of, of marriage and love is love. Jacob. I know this is just a question I've always had looking at this passage is... Uh where it says in verse 18 of chapter 2, where it says, uh, is it not good for the man to be alone? Um, or it is not good for the man to be alone. And 
that was brought into my mind the question like people always say like sin while not being created by God God's the arbiter over it but it wasn't created by God because God wouldn't create something evil the idea um, here is like oh there's something not good did God create something that wasn't good in order to fix it and to me I've always thought that was an interesting thing and why that might be like that why he made Adam alone at first and then gave him Eve rather than just making Adam and Eve together right away. Yeah, to peek ahead, so a couple of things. So one, so we, we should not assume, because the fall hasn't happened, we shouldn't assume that not good equals evil or not good equals sin, because it doesn't. What we're seeing is that God is still in his creational process. And the fact that God, and we'll get into this, God could have made Eve first. God could have made Adam and Eve simultaneously. But he made Adam, and then he also had Adam name all the creatures and name Eve. And that's theologically significant because Adam is, because that took place, Adam is the head of the human race. And everything that Adam did, we did in him. And so theologically, when, that's why when Adam sinned, all the human race fell within him. So that's actually part of the reason for the delay in creation. It also shows us that the roles in marriage, headship and, sub headship and submission, are not a result of the fall, but a gift of the very good creational order. And the fall just disrupted them, but didn't make them. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus restores the roles of marriage to us. So the creational order is significant, and that time gap is really theologically significant for the gospel itself, actually. Um, very good question. Any other questions? This is the least questiony evening we've ever had. Yes, Elder Scott. Bible hole shooter question. Polygamy in the Old Testament. So rampant, even among kings. <clears throat> so you're in, you're in that conversation, and they say something like, well, as a matter of fact, Jacob, two wives, um, and then the, you know, Leah, the, the wife that he never, never even wanted, he got swindled into it, uh, is that there's the line of, of the Messiah. But all 12 tribes seem to gain reverence in, in Scripture, so it seems as though God somehow has, like, placed some sort of approval on polygamy in the Old Testament because all 12 tribes are as a result of a polygamous marriage. How's that square with one man, one woman? Excellent question. Three answers. Number one, uh, one, of the, one of the areas that, a problem that I have had as a Bible reader, and maybe you don't have it, is you read, you read those things. Solomon took many wives. David had many wives. And you're like, what? Why is there no commentary on the badness of that? Is that what we're supposed to do? So the point number one is God only has to say something once, and then it remains true. And, and what we see is in Genesis 1, you have the, the prototype, Adam and Eve, one man, one woman. And then what we see in Genesis 4, after the murder of Abel, a guy, a bad guy named Lamech arises, and he kills a guy, and then he takes two wives to himself. And Lamech is traced from the 
lineage of the serpent. And we'll actually talk about this. So the Bible already gives us commentary by, by, by the time you get to Genesis 4 that, um, that, oh, yeah, having more than one wife is sin. And that's actually, when you do that, you are acting like the seed of the serpent and not the seed of the woman. And then third, I think it's Deuteronomy 17, 17, says that a king shall not multiply wives for himself. So Solomon, David, reverse, and all the other guys who did it, it was all sin. So you have this pattern where here's what God does, is he's gracious. So when Joseph's brothers beat him up, throw him in the pit, sell him into slavery, and then everything takes place, Joseph saves the world, Christ figure, he says, it was not you who sent me here, but God to save many people alive. And so what we see then is what God does is he's able to work in the willful, sinful sins of people, even to accomplish gospel purposes. So when you're reading about different guys multiplying wives, you sh the music should change and you, sh you should hear, dun, 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 he's sinning. When Sarah tells Abram, I can't bear a child, here's Hagar. Dun, 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 you should know that that's bad. So that's very good question. Thanks for asking that because that's, I've wrestled with that one and more. Yeah, Craig. Blame Scott. It was a leading question. So when did incest become sin? I have no idea. Probably post-flood. Okay. It's not the law of Moses? Because that's where it's written. I don't know. But there's a moral, the moral law existed, and, and God would have spoken to Adam, and there's a transference of moral law from Adam down through Genesis 5 and beyond. So they were in the total dark. So Noah had a knowledge of who God was, sacrific sacrificial system and more. It was just pre-Moses. But it wasn't sin when uh, in the time of Cain and Abel. And I don't think so. Yeah. So at some point it did change. Yeah, I mean, absolutely codified in the Mosaic Covenant. Right. But, yeah, I don't know. Okay. The Bible doesn't say, so I don't know. What I can say is don't marry your siblings. <laughs> Any other exciting questions? <laughs> Any other exciting questions for your friend or your neighbor? If you don't want to ask something, whisper it in their ear and they'll ask it. This is of a friend who asked me <laughs> to ask this. Was Paul ever married? Was Paul married? No. We don't know. He says that he wishes that people were like him, which was single. So is he, was he a widower? We don't know. Peter was married. All the other guys were married. Okay, well, I'm going to close this in prayer, and then all the questions you didn't want to ask in front of other people, I'll stay up here and, and ask, and we can talk about them. Lord, we, we love you, and God, we, with, with, great, um, with great sobriety, Lord, and humility, we thank you for the gospel. 
Lord, there's, there's, um, it's only your mysterious and redeeming love that you did not obliterate all creation when Adam and Eve sinned against you. And Lord, we know that you did flood the earth and preserve Noah and his family through it and put the rainbow in your sky to demonstrate that you would not flood the earth again, but Lord, you, you are going to judge the earth in days to come. We pray, Lord, that all the um, ideologies, this, this moment that we're in as a culture seems to be a breaking point and showing the, um, the weakness of secularism and the insanity of changing what we are other than what you made us. So God, I, I pray that your love for the lost would overwhelm us to speak the truth in love, to be fortified with your gospel, and that our, the NAU students, the high school students, any of us in any capacity that are being coerced at work, coerced by a teacher, coerced in class, coerced by the club, whatever it is, to go with the flow so that they want us to give approval of what they're doing. I pray that you would give us courage and strength, that your spirit would, would teach us how to answer in a moment or simply to stay quiet. But Lord, that you're, you would send revival and that in the bankruptcy of what this world has to offer, people would see the riches that they have in Jesus Christ. So Lord, to that end, would you bless us this evening? Thank you for your, this time and your word. We pray in Christ's name, amen.